My name's Mark Fennell. Uh, some of you might know me from Radio National. I host Download This Show. I also host The Feed on SBS, and some of you might not know who I am at all, and that's okay because I'm the least most interesting person on this stage. Will you please welcome uh, Robert Elliott Smith. He's joined us from the United... Well, actually, originally from Alabama, but uh, he lives in London now. He's the writer of the book, The Rage Inside the Machine, which speaks to all of the topics you're going to hear. But let's give him a round of applause. Good to be clapped for having not done anything yet. Like, that's a real achievement. Uh, alongside Robert, we have, from the University of Western Australia, Associate Professor Julia Powells, who is an international expert in all things law and technology. Welcome to the stage. And at the far end, a man that has been working in political campaigns for decades. He is also the author of the book Webtopia. What's the subtitle of the book, Peter Lewis? I can't even remember, Mark. I think it's something like <laughs> The Worldwide Wreck of Tech and How to Make the Net Work. There's yeah. a zinger. It is a zinger. And it's a lived experience for Peter because he spent all of last night writing notes on his phone. You know why? Because he brought his, his teenage son and the son would not let him use the laptop that he brought. So this is a personal traumatic experience for Peter, the internet. It's a cleansing, yeah. <laughs> okay. We are here to talk about the incredibly discreet uh, and narrow topic of big tech, data ethics, and bias in the age of algorithms. How are we going to fill 45 minutes with that? I don't know. Um, I want to start off with a question to you, Julia. There are things in our lives that are controlled by algorithms that some of us don't know. We don't know that they influence our lives. What is the one area of our lives that's influenced by an algorithm that you think people really should know about that maybe they don't? Hmm. So I think that, um, and we may come back to the extent to which we are willing into being a state where mm. um, algorithms are more embedded. I think probably it's in our information diet. Um, we have... Um, I think abandoned a lot of what we learned in information science about the problems of um, indexing information purely by popularity rather than veracity. Um, and this was actually recognised by the founders of Google um, as something that was, when they were grad students, a real problem. They were working amongst library scientists and information scientists and that that problem is compounded um, when the needs of your search engine are influenced by advertisers, mm. as in it works for the interests of advertisers, not for the interests of searchers and those providing information. So I think those dynamics, both of the search engine as a single source of truth and history and knowledge, and of course it's dependent on what, you, what that search engine scrapes, and then the dynamics of how people play to it. We were talking about search engine optimization and a perverse world where we're writing for machines, not people. <laughs> um, so I, I'd say those, those coupling effects of the ad, ad, ad base of um, a lot of digital platforms and particularly search, um, and then an abandonment of what was, I think, very sensitive to um, different cultures, um, different ways that we would want organize, uh, information organised and as soon as you even just think of the language dimension of um, digital platforms and search in particular, you realise a lot of what we've lost. Mm. Alright, whose phone went off? You always had a case of beer. Uh, Robert, same question to you. What is the aspect of our lives that is influenced by an algorithm that maybe people aren't aware of, that they really should be? Well, um, I have to agree with Julia here. It's, it's, I think the job that's been most displaced by computers thus far is, is the job of newspaper editor because effectively most of you, some of you may know that uh, in 2016, a very important election in the United States, uh, half of Americans got all their news from Facebook. And uh, Facebook, effectively, the editor for the newsfeed in Facebook is an algorithm, effectively. And it's an algorithm that generates a perception of the world that is unique to every person. Uh, all, as all algorithms have goals, they have things that they're trying to do, usually uh, simple-minded goals. And the goal of the Facebook algorithm is to deliver content to people that might get them to click through and see ads. Uh, that's pretty much the, the goal of, of Facebook. So, so effectively, we had an ad-based uh, editor who was just basically feeding things to people to try to get them to click through. Now, how do you get people to click through? Now, there's nothing new about headlines that aggravate people. Hurst, Hurst, Hurst and Pulitzer were doing that back uh, at the turn of the century. But effectively, people were being driven mad by, by headlines uh, that basically aggravated their emotions and engage them emotionally 
and uh, that was the basis upon which things were edited. And so effectively we got an outcome of polarization and a rather unusual election where one candidate won the popular vote by three million votes and the other candidate got the presidency. Uh, it's the, the largest gap uh, ever uh, between the Electoral College and the popular vote. And um, one of the reasons for that is not only does the do the algorithms target you based on advertising, they can target you down to very fine features like where you live. That couples with another algorithm that we've had for a very long time is the algorithm of how we determine who wins the election, which is the Electoral College. And everybody, every society has a version of this, right? And so effectively, by marrying those two things together, we made a system that worked very poorly, I think, with regard to representing poor people's points of view. So there's a place that algorithms, most people don't realize, algorithms have changed elections, is what it comes down to, and I think that's already happened. I feel like that's the easiest possible segue to you, Peter. You've spent years working in and around the world of politics. What is the aspect of our lives controlled by algorithms that perhaps we aren't aware of? You don't have to stick to politics, but you can if you want. I'll start big and then zero in. I think, for me, the big change has been that we have become the product of technology. And I think most of the people in this room have lived their life where they, they remember the analogue world, the internet came along and it seemed like this amazing tool that would connect people up and democratise information. It just seemed awesome and I, I was part of that um, cheer squad. Um, something's happened over the last decade where the business models have matured to such an extent that smart algorithms can capture our personal information and then use them against us. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. This is the business model that when you are using Facebook as a free platform, it is harvesting your information to sell to advertisers to, um, to, 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 to sell back to you. Um, the business model is to keep you there as long as they possibly can so they can extract more and more of your personal information to sell more and more ads to others. And the impact on democracy is that everybody that uses this as their primary source of information is receiving a different view of the world designed to fit how they already think. So if you're a left wing, if, if you're someone that goes to WOMAD, you probably think Facebook's quite a progressive medium because the stuff that you're getting on there kind of accords with your view of the world. If you're a, a mad right winger, you think it's, you know, you, you think it's a right wing um, platform and it makes you feel really comfortable in your world. There's a couple of in, um, impacts. One is it erodes away the public square where we actually meet and exchange ideas and mediate our truths. And when you get an existential issue like climate change, there is just no common space to work that out anymore. And everybody, even over the last the bushfires, over the last over the summer, our research showed that it didn't unify people on a need to act on climate. It actually polarised people and and reinforced the views and. On Twitter, we had the climate um, or the arson emergency being generated by bots locking people into their existing worldviews. So, because we are now the product, the idea of a democracy where people come together as a collective has been undermined. And it's a really profound issue that we're still thinking through. Is it simple enough to say, and this gets said a lot in the conversation around fake news and misinformation? Is it simple enough to say, log off, or does it need a bit more deeper thinking, Julia? Yeah, so that's going straight to, I think, if we have this diagnosis of, you know, f there's all these problems and concessions you make when you use a platform like Facebook, what do you do about it? And I think it's a constant challenge for critics of um, technology. What, what should we be working on instead? What should, where, where should we be convening? And I think that there are some things we can do at an individual level, but there are a lot of problems that can't be solved individually. So the problem with log off is you are then becoming a digital pariah. You're choosing to not have, I mean, even in a university setting, we have situations where students won't find out about events if they're not on Facebook. Yeah. Um, they won't meet people. So where, where can you go instead? And there I think we need more collective solutions. So Rob was saying about when we get search results or we get news feed, like why is it that we only have one newsfeed? Like, how come we can't toggle between different newsfeed results? You know, why not be able to choose your own algorithm that says, here is the way that this algorithm is driven, and um, it's... You could it's set up a right-wing persona, a left-wing persona. Oh, I know that. people that do that. I have a friend that literally has two separate accounts. One is right-wing Jeff, and one is left-wing Jeff. They're both... <laughs> 
awful. But did Jeff, do they hate each other? Or? <laughs> Look, Jeff's got a really complex interior life. I don't question it. It's Jeff's choices. But it is interesting, and he's loaded it up. By the way, Jeff is not his real name. I made that up. Um, and it is fascinating. And it is one of those occasions where you, only, you need to log on and you need to see how different it is to really sort of experience it. Yeah. Just coming back to that point about, you know, whether it's as simple enough to just go, well, I'm, I'm not going to have a Facebook account anymore. It doesn't really solve the overarching no, problem, it, does it, it, Robert? It doesn't. And, and uh, you know, ultimately, there are things that we'll have to do as a society through actions of government, through actions of regulation, and, and, and that, that is necessary. I mean, how did we ultimately get the broadcast media to work effectively? It was by regulating the broadcast media, and, and only in the past, you know, 30 years have we abandoned the idea, at least in the U.S., of, of well-regulated broadcast media, much to the detriment of the quality of the media. However, uh, there, is a, there is a realm of appropriate regulation for social media, and I could talk a lot about that. But in the near term, are there things we can all do besides logging off? And there are. Um, one of the things I tell people to do is, uh, we've done simulations at University College London where I worked that basically show that there's a naturally polarizing effect to social media. Social media, by its very nature, even if the algorithms aren't trying to divide us, tends to cause us to divide. Uh, what, so the simulations tell us some things about what you can do to stop that. One is more connectivity is better. So if you have blocked people who aren't out-and-out out Nazis, unblock them. I know it's difficult, but you're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it for everyone because what you're doing is you're opening up the pipes, not just the pipes to you, but the pipes through you to other people. This is a positive effect that will our study show will definitely decline polarization. Another thing you can do uh, is behave less like an algorithm yourself. Don't share on headlines. Read the article. Because first of all, there's a feedback loop there that, that my wife and I were talking about this earlier today. Uh, effectively, headlines are becoming more emotive and more winding up and more kind of not really representative of the articles. And, and a lot of times, as journalists, uh, I'm sure some of the people here who have written for, for magazines know that sometimes the headline isn't yours, it's the editor's. Almost always, it's oh, never yeah, mine. <laughs> yeah, and, and those headlines oftentimes are a wind-up to get people to share them. Don't share on the headline. Read the piece. Read through the piece. Get to know the author. Uh, so that you develop a personal relationship with them, right? In in your head, at least, not by stalking them, and uh, and then uh, unless you're my friend, uh, yeah, Jeff. whatever. You know, I'm not <laughs> I'm not judging you, but but uh, and and uh, share with a human comment. Uh, try to you know not just say. I mean, I'm I'm terrible at this. If you look at my social media now, you'll realize I do this. It's exciting or awesome. <laughs> try to say something more in depth that you can that will make the algorithms more, less con more confused and make them serve things in a more complex way. And do try to take a look at stuff that differs slightly from your own point of view. I know we're in a, such a, there are feedback loops here and we're effectively in such a highly polarized state now that it's very difficult to look at anything that's, whose opinion is different from your own because it's so extreme. But if you just take the time to, to consider a bit and then share maybe with a comment that says, I don't quite agree with this, but there was a good point here. You're making the world a better place. That's something we actually can do until we get the right politicians in and have some regulations of social media. So there's some interesting things that you said there. One of the things that strikes me particularly about Facebook and Twitter is Facebook and Twitter reward the fast twitch response. It, it literally yeah, rewards right. you for being the fastest and the snarkiest. Yeah. That's how it's built. But then to push that to the other end of the extreme, you say open up the, the pipelines, but what if you are a person that's on the receiving end of an enormous amount of hate or somebody that's... Well, that, I mean, that, that is a component a of being thing, online in these I, days and age. I have friends who are on the receiving end of an enormous amount of hate, given the, the stuff in my book that's about racism. Uh, you know, as an old white guy, I don't get a lot in the neck, but, but uh, a good friend of mine, Angela Saini, who's written two very wonderful books that every hum single human being should read, uh, she gets it all the time, but she's a brown woman. She gets a lot of bad stuff. I don't know how she copes. You just got to kind of have a thick skin, I think, if you're in that situation. But, um, yeah, I think there are things that we can do as individuals. Uh, you just have to kind of suffer through. If you do unblock people, opening up those pipes does mean you're going to see stuff that you really don't like. Well, just get past it. Just go scroll past it something else. Can I, can yeah. I just 
push back a little bit there, though, because I think putting it all on us as end users to deal with what's effectively become a privatised public yeah. square is, you know, it is it is so problematic that this massive corporation is making its money through the context, through the conduct of political discourse with no right, right, regard right. to the rules. So, right. Facebook to politics and the media is a little bit like Uber is to taxis. They come in and they say, your laws don't apply to us. It's kind of this technological terra nullius. They come in and they say, rules don't apply to us. We're new. We're different. We're not a taxi service. We just yeah. pay you to drive us from A to B. And Facebook's kind of the same with both the media. And, it, and, and, and it's become more and more because it's become a platform for politics. And Zuckerberg's pushed back really hard on the um, idea that Facebook should comply with the sort of laws that old media providers had to comply with, yeah, like yeah. truth in political advertising. The micro-targeting that they do is particularly insidious. So they build up a profile that finds a like. Um, you know, my political campaigning work, I can get a list of a thousand people that have clicked on a campaign and then I can give them that, that email list to Facebook and say, find me other people like that and they will send the same message. And that's, that's where Facebook can target down to really small groups of people and tell them lies because there's yeah. no right for truth in advertising and there is no way to see what all those different conversations are going hey, on. Hey, Peter, so that as a political operative, goes, do you do that? I, I'd say I use it um, for the causes that I think are important. So, yes, <laughs> we, we will run a campaign. We, we, don't, we did a lot of work with Rosie Batty and Family Violence. We were trying to get a list of people that supported them. And, of course, we looked for middle-aged women who um, had a particular background and we would target saying, support Rosie. Now, um, it works. Um, and But beca just because it works... Uh, for a good doesn't mean that it's the ideal setting. No, absolutely. Um, and it all comes down to the ethics of the people participating. Here's another bit, and I think is a missing bit, which as the public squares become privatised and it's eroding out democracy, there is actually on political players to have a code of ethics, which they don't have as well on how mm. they use those tools as well. What would that code of ethics look like for somebody don't in lie. your profession? Don't lie. Which is novel for politics, but... <laughs> Very. Um, Particularly at the moment. But, you know, post-truth just so corrodes politics and how do we... And, 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 you know, climate change is one thing, but you see with this, the information around coronavirus, like, we really need to have good facts in front of people or people die. And we've broken away. And it'd be really interesting to see how that works in the States where if we think it's bad here, I think it's more toxic yeah, yeah. Um, and more manipulated there. How do you actually manage a society without a base of truth and then how do we allow a private company that's making squillions on the erosion of that public square keep going like it is? And, you know, one of the tragedies of Warren dropping out of the presidentials was she, her platform was to break up Facebook. And I don't see, you know, Uncle Joe quite going down that <laughs> yeah. track. Julia, yeah. um, it's an interesting proposition, the idea of, uh, of a code of ethics. Let's, let's step it away from politics just for a second. If you were to build, if you were given the job of building a code of ethics for the news feed, let's just like target it on that, what would be your starting point? What would be the baseline principles of, of a code of ethics just for the Facebook news feed? So I'd start with the base of law yep. first, because one of the ways ethics gets used is to make the law subjective. Mm. So first the base of law, and perhaps, I mean, my boldest position on personal data is that um, this, it, it can't be that the most valuable companies in the world hold this data sort of exclusively for all time with no costs, and we as the people who are the sources of that data have no equivalent rights. So I would first regard that Facebook is the custodian of data that it doesn't own. So if it's the custodian of data that doesn't own, it gives you, I think, a, a better floor than the fact that it can just do whatever it wants. Mm. Um, and then upon that, I think the ethics that we have, codes of ethics that I think have um, been developed in, in the media. And I would associate, I think broadcast is a very interesting one as opposed to the press. So broadcast, you have this view that you need to ensure that um, each side has been fact 
fact-checked in, mm. in our country, I think, and that you are working with a, a sort of a representation and, and, and a sense that people need to have be exposed to different sorts of news. Mm. And there's always this sort of hammocking between more serious news that is important for us as a democracy and then also the sort of news that is mm. like supermarket news that people need to know. So I think that that balance is missing in Facebook because one of the things that has happened in the algorithm is because they want attention all the time um, and because we want the sort of rage and, and the and emotive content, there's been a prioritisation of the sort of stuff that is more in the supermarket news um, mm. style and not in the, in the real news. So uh, uh, that sort of ethic framework across different... Um, different sorting algorithms I would have as a base. And then I think I do think that it's if, if we have that base that this is information that Facebook is custodians of, there should be a way that you have, you know, a, an ABC curated news algorithm, you should have one that's done by the Human Rights Commission, you should have different sorts of um, sorting algorithms that you can toggle between and, and they say within them, we edit. And, and Facebook has this two-faced thing where it says, um, we're not an editor, we're just dumb pipes, we put the content on, but then whenever it's accused of bias and so on, it sort of yeah, retracts. It's the most I'm, disingenuous I'm, argument. Like, it's the most disingenuous argument that Facebook put up. It's yeah. insane. It's yeah. monumentally well, insane. We're a platform, not a publisher. Um, they're a new form of publisher, but what they're trying to do is get away with being a publisher with absolutely no um, responsibility for their content. Yeah. And the, the corollary, though, is to enforce anything. They've got to employ people. At the moment, they've got these poor souls that just sort of delete the worst of the worst content. In but the Philippines, is, who are yeah. now suing because of PTSD. Yeah, yeah. But, apart, you know, um, <coughs> and probably defeat an automation process down the track as well, mm. just quietly. But um, in terms of, you know, any sort of responsibility for the output, it would require employing humans. Yeah, mm. that's right. And yeah. which, which goes to the broader discussion, any automation needs to still have humans involved exactly or it right. can't be... Ethical yeah. or fair. As, as, as artificial intelligence guy, I have to tell people the involvement of humans is essential, particularly in things that contact human beings and human society very intimately. Uh, because AI, although very useful uh, and, and very helpful for the future, uh, is not like us. It doesn't have the, the ability. And uh, I, I couldn't agree with the two other people here anymore with regard to regulation, with regard to the foundations of law. Uh, but but also there's there's uh, there are things that algorithms can do well and things that they can't do well in helping uh, the, the detection of truth. Um, I don't have a lot of faith in the detection of truth by algorithms because truth is a really slippery concept. For instance, Theresa May, former prime minister of the U United Kingdom, uh, was very fond of saying. 86% of people who voted in the last election that she got elected in uh, voted for parties that supported Brexit. That is a true statement. 86% of people did vote for parties that supported Brexit in that general election. However, most of those people didn't support Brexit because a lot of people voted, you know, there was nobody to vote for who didn't in some sense support Brexit. Mm. You know, you voted for Labour, you voted Conservative, you were, they both supported Brexit. So, you know, it was a it was a, a misleading, and if you look at uh, truthometers, various kinds of truth evaluators, they usually have about six categories of truth, and the purely false one has almost nothing in it. I mean, almost everything is in the intermediate category, so you need human beings there, absolutely. The one other thing I want to say about it is, um, the media is the message, Marshall McLuhan said, right? And, and the, the nature of social media is it's a dynamic organism in a way that the broadcast media wasn't. Because of frequency, because of interconnection, it's a dynamic organism. And we have to have regulation that matches its kind of organic evolving behavior. And so we, we need to basically have monitors. Are people getting a diverse sense of, a, uh, a set of opinions offered to them is an important thing. We used to enforce that in broadcast media in the United States under the Fairness Doctrine, which Reagan got rid of. Uh, you know, essentially the Fairness Doctrine said you have to be fair and present many different points of view. Now, algorithms can help, I think, in that regard. I think that on social media, if we could get Facebook uh, to conform, which will probably require governmental action, we could basically say people have to get diverse voices delivered in their feed as a matter of law. Right? That would be a good thing, and it, algorithms could help and we could do it. 
Uh, but we have to have a shift. To, I, I couldn't agree more with, with Peter that we absolutely need regulation. I, I, I'm all for the grassroots action that I advocated earlier, but, but ultimately it's going to have to. It's a, it's a media company, a massive media company. We're going to have to regulate it. Robert, you have an interesting background. You grew up in, in Alabama in the days of desegregation and, yep. of course, spent years working in, in artificial intelligence. I'm wondering, what did that, that early experience teach you about the way prejudice and bias is folded into human endeavours like technology? Well, the, the story that I tell in my book and I tell a lot, and it, uh, you know, I tell it so much I don't want to undermine the, the profundity of the story to my life, really, is um, when I was going to elementary school, um, anti-desegregation busing was brought in by the government because although we had uh, Alabama has 28% uh, black people, uh, you know, which is high for the United States. Uh, so there's, one could superficially say there's more diversity in Alabama than there is in, say, a place like Iowa or Vermont. However, those communities existed in uh, completely separate from one another. And the government came in and said, no, at schools, for kids, you have to mix these people and you have to put, them in, put, put people in buses and take them somewhere else. And that ended up having me have contact with people who, the kind of racist background I had been brought up in, you know, had been scary and, and, you know, sort of vilified and put down. And that, there's a nice story in the book that I won't tell here, had a profound effect on my life and really changed me profoundly and, and contacting black children. Anti-desegregation anti busing was the best thing that ever happened to me and, and that's true of a lot of people in America. It's an unknown story. And um, the, the thing it taught me, I think that ultimately, strangely, I came back and realized through my AI career is that diversity plus mixing is a necessary thing for a healthy evolving system, whether that system be the thoughts of a single child the actions of a society, the world, uh, diversity plus mixing. That's what we have to strive for. And, and I've kind of shown that scientifically in some ways. And so that's the real thing that joined up together for me about my experience as a kid. When we talk about data, we've talked a lot about what is out in the world in terms of social media, the news that we consume. But there's also data that for many people is intensely personal. And Julia, you've written about the experience of uh, Australian health data being uh, loaded up on the internet and how completely smooth and flawless that was. Um, <laughs> but you wrote a really interesting piece for The Guardian comparing the experience of what we set up in Australia versus what happened in the UK. What is it that we got wrong about how we handled our data, our health data in Australia? Yeah, health is such a great um, issue to go in on because I think it's one that exposes the real challenge of privacy and public good because there are health issues we're in the midst of them, where joined up information, um, sort of collective problem solving is really crucial. Um, but there are other health issues that are not of collective interest. And I think that what's happened in this sort of way that we treat big data like magic um, is that we've lost that nuance between the things that are intensely personal and the things that are, that are public. I mean, we've had bioinformatics as a sort of leading movement led by people who understand medicine um, for a good 30 years of like in, embedded in practice. But now we have experts who are coming from computer science, machine learning, who I think don't have their health background, who are using tools that are equally aged, I think, um, but ha have the power of companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and are getting into our health system in a way that we have traditionally guarded against. And that's because we're a bit impatient <laughs> that we haven't had those advances um, so far. But I think we're making a real mistake in giving over really to a, a, a political power that we haven't seen before, that because they've all made these magic devices we carry in our pockets and on our bodies and we're going to put our bodies in them, we think they can do anything. And... That's the cell. So I compared the situation in the UK where the same fellow who basically got booted out of the UK for setting up a, a health system that didn't have the a, a centralised health data management system that didn't have the safeguards got booted out of the UK and he came and started the same thing in Australia and that's our um, digital health record. Classic so, Australia. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one very good policy thing we could do is not follow the UK on a lot of this stuff because the UK has a conceit that it will be the developer of a lot of the technologies that 
boost its economy. And I don't think Australia should have that conceit in the same way. We are in a part of the world that is a net importer of technology. We're in a part of the world where a lot of that invisible labour, more people work for Facebook scraping the absolute scourge of the internet than actually work at Facebook. They're contract labourers, they're in the Philippines, India. Um, there are a handful in our country and they're all in neighbouring countries. So what, what sort of things should we be considering, I think, in that dynamic? And we have such a fantastic health system. So does the UK. These are the best index health repositories in the world. So, of course, they're of interest um, to big tech platforms. But why I've always been passionate about this area is I started in bioscience and I think that's an area where you do have to make quite significant compromises with the private sector because of the cost of um, clinical trials, of massive, you know, um, health facilities and others. Data-based data um, innovation, you need um, data sets, which are principally held by public sector agencies. Mm. You need smart people, which we have in abundance, and you need compute power, which is at a radically diminishing cost. So why the heck are we giving all this stuff to private companies yep. um, and not just being brave enough to do it ourselves? And that's, I think, a, a political question and a power question. From a non-expert perspective, I think one of the... Welcome to my world, yeah, perennial non-expert. We're, we're winging the experts on the mm. side, Mark. Um, <laughs> I, I hate the term data because it makes it sound like it's this thing that people in a lab coat are dealing with in a laboratory. We've got to start calling it our personal information and then all of a sudden we've got a lot more agency, I think, and engagement with it. And I think Julia's right. One of the, the real insights from the... I won't say the failure of my health record, but at least the difficulty was a breach of social contract in people handing over things they thought were personal to um, the government and knowing also that corporations were involved. So what do we do about that, um, given that it probably would be in our interest to share our information? Now, at the moment, we're in a world where you click consent and then away it goes and we don't really know what happens to it. There's, you know, we've, we've been doing a bit of a scan um, at the Australia Institute on some of the, the common platforms. And, you know, the average privacy statement takes 30 minutes to read and you need a postgraduate degree to understand their language, you know. So we can start by actually being clear about how the information's being used. What would that look like for you? Like, what, what's your I, desired I think, Well, I, th I think the... Um, the onus on people collecting information if they want to build trust is to, to, to explain it in a simple infographic. And if you can't explain it in the infographic, maybe think about the terms and um, go back to the drawing board. I think we kind of need a, a wide-style um, you know, amnesty on all the consent we've clicked and go back and start again. But the second point, which I think is really interesting, and, and the good thinking is around health, is the idea of rather than us having our information being given to companies or government on a one-on-one -on -one basis, that there are a creation of, of trusts which hold them for our benefit. So, for instance, our health information might be held um, by a third-party trust that operates for our own benefits, not for commercial um, outcomes, and it protects it securely. It um, negotiates with, if it's with um, a government health provider, to ensure that it's anonymous but in our interest and if they're making money out of it, maybe some of that should come back to us given that none of us are going to have jobs in the future anyway, <laughs> so we need to find a way of... We're, we're all going to have jobs. You knew when you sat down this is going to end up with all of us being replaced by robots, right? You knew that. whole separate conversation, the whole world without work conversation, I mean, is how, how many people out there right now feel that technology is lessening their amount of work that they have to do. Actually, can we get a show of hands? Does anyone feel like technology has actually lessened the amount of work? All right, does anybody, and can I get a show of hands if you feel like technology has made your work harder and more involved? Yeah, there you go. All so, those in favor of setting up an Amish community say, oh, no, fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, cool, we're doing that now. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's, I mean, sorry, sorry to sound like a right lefty, but that's not how capitalism works. <laughs> Technology doesn't make you have less work. That's not how it works. It makes you have more work because you're exploited for greater efficiency. However, less income. Yeah. Oh, yeah, ex exactly. You I know. love that you apologize for sounding like a lefty. This is why I'm Adelaide. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, um, so... So yeah, that, the healthcare thing is really interesting. I, I think as a as a case because uh, you know it's an old profession, and because it's an old profession, it's one that's gone through a lot of the test already. And we've done things like we've set up people take an oath, 
you know, you have to take an oath to be a doctor. And we have institutions that, that like medical boards and, uh, and evaluations of hospitals, and, and we have these, these institutions that will strike you off if you're a bad doctor. You know, that's because healthcare is so intimate and has been close to our most intimate secrets and our most intimate aspects of our lives and our bodies forever. So it has these human institutions that prevent it from being something really horrible. Well now, software design, engineering of computer systems is now close to us intimately. I have a, I have a computer in my pocket right next to my Goonies, you know. And uh, the, th the thing is, is that we need now to have oaths and institutions for the designers of those tools because they're so intimately close to our lives. And, and I, I don't see any why, reason why there shouldn't be a software developer's oath to do no harm, you know. Um, because those institutions, those changes of oath and institution ultimately are the things that, that cause us to be governed and to feel that we have human responsibility. You know, and, and right now, it's like software designers, you know, they, you know, it's the, the philosophy is move fast and break things, right? And which is, you know, uh, kind of an, as an abstraction is good. But when, when some of those things are kids and the elderly, it's not such a good thing, you know? Mm. All right, I want you to stay on that thought for a second. At some point, I'm going to ask for audience questions. So I want you guys to start thinking about what question you want to ask. Have you guys already started to get questions in your head? Are there already questions now? All right. What's our strategy for actually getting audience questions? Are we going to... Have we got a... Oh, we've got a roving mic. All right. Well, actually, if you have a question, can I get your hand up nice and, nice and high? All right. There's a gentleman over there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know, do you think there's a point in time when the complexity and interactions of algorithms will create systems that we as humans are not capable of understanding? And do you think we're already there? Yeah, that happened about 10 years ago. Yeah, Why? I, what happened 10 years ago? <laughs> what, what, what was the pinpointed moment 10 years ago? The, the moment that it happened is... I mean, the idea... Probably a very long time ago, because the thing is, is... Um, systems that we don't understand, co complex systems of the capital C complex variety that complexity scientists like myself look at, are ubiquitous and commonplace, right? Uh, you know, effectively, when we, when we got beyond computers that were isolated in, in laboratories and started exposing them to continuous data that was coming from out the outside world of any kind, they Prob their behaviors became too complex to understand. It's just that that's now massive. I mean, and now it's, it, we couldn't even retrospectively understand the behavior of, uh, of major data analysis systems in the world. It would be a huge research project. So yeah, we already have computer systems that are way outside the complexity of our understanding. All right, could we get, uh, uh, could we get a microphone to this lady down here in the second row? Oh, oh, sorry, there's one over there then. Can you please comment on the use of computer modeling for major decision making? I have the recent experience in Balmoral Village in the Southern Highlands on the 21st of December of having my home burned down and my six acre bush block so pulverized by three fire fronts. Uh, for the weeks beforehand, there was an ongoing battle between our local RFS and the seniors regarding the provision of resources, uh, permission to cut uh, backburns and roads, and the computer modelling that was being used was not being backed up by any local knowledge, which ended up being the correct way to ascertain the direction of the fire and the impact. Also, uh, just a comment that Facebook has been used in the post-recovery period as the major communication tool, in fact, almost the only communication tool. So there's a large number of older people like myself who have missed out on the opportunity to participate in community building functions and access the resources that have been provided after the disaster. So, yeah, let's talk to the model. I, I, I can't talk to your own terrible circumstance and really sorry to hear what happened to you. Um, 
I think the broader issue is around <coughs> automated decision-making, um, particularly by authorities and human accountability. So there is currently a um, report from the Human Rights Commission that's out for public discussion, which I urge everyone that's interested in this to read, which talks about the way governments but other organisations make automated decisions and the importance of having human accountability in that process because computers make decisions in particular ways. The idea of um, correlation as opposed to humans who take in that information and then have other inputs as well, yeah. causation. Yeah, I know I we've talked about that before. Um, in terms of the digital divide, I don't know if you want to say anything. Well, I might just connect maybe the first question and that question, which is that there's something about, um, you know, there's lots of systems we don't fully understand. Um, and uh, I think that we, we have, we still think we can control them. Like most of us don't, you know, know how bridges stay up or how cars are built or anything. We still think, yes, we can do something about them. But we also have a humility about, I think, what we can model. Um, you have that great quote that all models are wrong because otherwise they'd be the real world. So the, the, I think that what we need to introduce then is, and to respect and revere is local human experience. And there's something about our, you know, something very human about our desire to reduce uncertainty. And that's the huge promise of tech. It, it, it promises us quick solutions. But it, what we lose in that is, I think, um, both the knowledge that we all have that, you know, there is more complexity than a model and that we have something to say about it. And so I think the real tragedy, especially in a country like this where most of the platforms we use are coming from a very long way away, is that we don't think about what we can, how we can co-design them. So, you know, I think that there's a real opportunity in the, um, in thinking about our particular interests in things like, um, you know, the future of our country and um, the kinds of innovations that we could have that don't drop this floor on personal information but are thinking about our vast land where there's a lot of people who are going to be affected by systems where they are outliers and so yeah, there's got to be a real attention to what they know and how we can, we can really have yeah. systems that, that account for human experience. Is so that not also an argument though that that, that computer modelling system had a wasn't take, taking into account all the available data. For example, the local knowledge that um, that you're talking about. Could it not just be a case of the modelling needs to be improved by having a b broader range of inputs, in including that local knowledge? Yeah, I mean that the 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 full quote is all models are wrong. Some models are useful, and that's that's always always true. And and um, you know what 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 engineers engineers don't have an oath. But when I was taking engineering at at university. You know, basically, we learned about how you did stresses on parts, and you basically figured out the stress field, and you figured out, okay, this is strong enough. Now make it three times heavier so that that it, we know it's strong enough, right? Safety margins. You basically multiply this. You made things stronger than they should be because you didn't know that your model was correct, and that's the kind of thing you have to do. You have to kind of say, well, maybe we didn't get it right. Maybe maybe our model's wrong, and we need to search for new data to adapt the model, but we also need to be cautious with regard to anywhere we're using modeling, which is effectively in all possible reasoning. But yeah, gathering more data from more local, uh, local uh, sources is certainly necessary, including the human element is absolutely necessary. But the, the thing I want to emphasize as an algorithm guy, as an artificial intelligence guy, is it's always going to be necessary. This is not going away. It's not like we're going to have artificial general intelligence and it's going to be super intelligent and it's going to be smarter than we are and able to deal with uncertainty in a way that we can't because there is such a thing as intractable uncertainty in the world. And it's not going away. Nothing's getting rid of it. We just have to realize that and stop having sci-fi delusions about what models and algorithms can do for us. But just one other observation I'd like to add there is this idea for the first, you know, iteration of the internet that it was a global thing um, 
that wasn't rooted in local community is interesting, isn't it? And if you go to AI which is reflective of the biases of those that are building it and the input, I think we're on the, the verge of an interesting iteration where now you've kind of got a Chinese version of the internet. I think you've got a hyper-capitalist version, the American version. Yeah. You've got a rules-based one in Europe. And I think we're in this interesting moment. What does an Australian internet look oh, like? that's interesting. And, you know, particularly in the context of the, the Human Rights Commission report, if, we, if one of the other recommendations is that no AI should be able to discriminate against people. So if you actually had fairness by design into the Australian models of AI, does that create a different flavour or a different type? Well, that, and then you, then you go from nation state down to local areas and the localisation of network technology is a really interesting sort that's, that's of movement, yeah? That's very interesting. All right, who else has a question? Uh, oh, the other, yes, there you go. Uh, hi, um, my name's Irina and I'm doing a PhD on AI recruitment and ethics. And I don't come from a science background, I come from a social studies background. Um, so I've learned about this AI stuff as a non-techie human. So my question is, if you can talk to this, if you feed an algorithm enough data, does it really know more about me than I do? Is that true? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, I heard uh, Yuval Harari, he wrote Homo Deus, who some, some of you may have read that book. Uh, it's a good book, by the way, and I, he's a great author. But I heard him talk about it, and he admits he doesn't know anything about the technology. He doesn't understand the technology. Yet, in the talk, he said, uh, based on press releases he had read from, from various people, he said, in the future, AI will know you better than your partner knows you, or even than you know yourself. And uh, the first question in the audience in London, excellent question, a woman at the end of my pew in, in the Methodist Center said, um, what do you mean by the word no? Mm. Right? And that's the right question. I mean, what does it mean to know anything? And particularly, what does it mean to know something as complex as a person? I mean, I don't know myself. And I don't, think, I don't think there's any data gathering exercise, any frame of gathering data from me that, uh, and I, I do mean any data gathering exercise, including some future technology that reads every neuron and every hormone in my body continuously for a long period of time, I literally believe that that cannot know me uh, and, and that any reasonable technology for measuring data about people is always a frame. It's always a frame. You know, if you look at dating apps, everybody here has probably been on a dating app, <laughs> you know, today, right? So, so, you know, it asks you a bunch of questions, right? It asks you a bunch of questions to try to find somebody you, you might marry, right? And that's a frame. It's constructed a frame that asks you how tall you are and, 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 and you know, what religion you are and, and what... That's a frame. And I'm sure every person here feels like that frame didn't capture me. And then you start talk, thinking to yourself, what frame could capture me, much less someone else? And I think you'll very quickly realize that there is no such frame. My maybe maybe we just need to bring no back to the biblical definition. <laughs> I was yeah, just going to say, yeah. like, you can go, my favorite experience of this is you can go into both Facebook and Google and you can look at the graphs of who they think you are. And they both think I'm a 45-year-old woman. So <laughs> I don't know what I'm giving off, but I'm honored to be taking up this role. Do you, think, do you think it is possible for technology to know you or is it only possible to understand a series of variables about you, Julia? Well, I think a very interesting transition we're in is from more screen-based um, AI to AI that is in our cars and in our streets and in our physical environment, in our homes. And in that, it may not know who you are, but it has a pretty damn good estimation on how you and people like you behave. Mm. And what I'm worried about is we won't have the opportunities that serendipity and, 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 and meandering discovery help us in, in exactly the same way you describe about like life experience that gives you things that you then know. One of the reasons I resist entirely using Uber is I don't like the fact that it gives me a very particular um, experience. I, I was principally in, in Europe and the US and it was a particular experience of driving that I didn't have when I drove with taxi drivers, which generally was an experience where I had a much broader exposure to different individuals. I don't think it's good for us to have more of what we like, which is what I think algorithms deliver us because they want you to retain um, their service. And I think we won't even know half of our city if we're only 
fed by something that's very predictive. So I think that it's dangerous that it doesn't know us and we're embedding it in our life more than that it, you know. Yeah, well said, well said. <laughs> you know, it's all us back to the start of this conversation, but there are, there are two things. One is the idea that technology knows us um, through extracting our information. So I don't want to live in a world where I've got a home organiser that's capturing everything that I say in the house and it's sending it back to the mothership. That's the privacy frame, but more fundamentally, I don't want to live in a world where organisations or private companies have the power to place that in my home. So, you know, one of the, I think one of the maturations of this debate is that for a long time this was about privacy. So the, the natural pushback was, well, I got nothing to hide, so, you know, I don't care. That's not actually the point. The point is we're, we're living in a world where we are producing raw information that is then being used against us. And yeah. if we don't get our head around that, we're going to just see a, you know, this continual webtopian world where each new product is just, how great is this going to make my life? I can now, I don't need to get up to change the TV, you know, that was uh, fine. Mm. I can tell Alexa to turn off the lights. And like, yeah. does it actually improve our life to the yeah. extent that it's worth the cost of what we're yeah. giving up. Gentle reminder, Peter's book is called Webtopia. He will be signing copies I, after I, this. I dropped that in nicely, didn't I? So smooth, so yeah. seamless. Who else has a question? Uh, uh, unless, uh, I, oh, yep, you've already got a microphone. Thanks very much. Um, that's a great presentation, thank you. Um, you talked a little bit about social isolation, the impact of big data on social isol isolation. The thing that hasn't come up which is a great concern to me, is the impact of big data on the financial system and the fact that the financial system through big data isolates a lot of people. Even at this event, you can't actually go to the bar and get a drink with cash. Uh, you know, you have to have a card. It's part of the big data system. Um, I know a lot of homeless people. I know a lot of people that can't negotiate well with computer systems, and they're effectively being yeah. socially isolated. Yeah. Can you comment on that, with particularly ref particular reference to finance? Wow. Yeah, great question. Really, really good question. Really good question. I, um, my wife had to go, we, we bought a new car in London, and my wife had to go to the council uh, to change our parking permit to the new car. Couldn't do it online, strangely enough. But when she got to the council, there's a big sign up that says, this is an all digital council now. And, and you know, effectively, there's one person there, right, monitoring the all digital council. A lot of computers, a bunch of phones where you could like phone people somewhere else when you need to talk to a person. And um, it, was, it was supposed to be an all digital payment council as well. You could, no cash, cash free. Uh, of course, the, their card machines were broken, and they had an ATM there, right? <laughs> so, and, and my wife said, you know, it, it was hard for her. It was, it was, she had to come back twice because it was so, so frustrating and difficult. Uh, but the really sad thing is most of the people who were waiting there were people who were disabled or elderly. Uh, and, of course, these, this is the thing about systems that do statistical averaging is the outliers are the people who get it in the neck. And that's always going to be true. There's always going to be an outlier, and those people are always going to be the people who get it in the neck. A minority, a person who's disabled, a person who, who uh, is, is elderly or, or very young, they're the people who are going to be the outside cases. And we can start trying to say, well, we'll carve out a space of this digital world that's special to them, but the, the space of spaces is very large, and there'll always be someone who is an outlier. I'll give two quick comments. One is um, a recommendation of a tremendous scholar who works on finance and um, technology, Frank Pasquale. He's written a great book, Blackboard Society, and also looks at credit scoring and the way that that um, has sort of dramatic um, isolating elements. The, the second is I, I advocate cash, and I think in places we, we're moving quickly to places that, that only take card, but the next transition of that is that they only take phones. And yeah. I don't know if people have travelled in, in China and neighbouring countries, but mm. it's terrifying that you can't use anything but a phone. And of course, the same right. companies that are, that are now digital cash um, are, are the likes. They're the direct equivalents of um, Google and Facebook. And uh, that will be a pretty scary reality, but we're ushering it in. And, you know, there's so much, I think a big thing we can do is just not treat people like machines. So when you, if you don't want a world where you only get coffee from a machine, 
treat baristas in the style that you would like to be treated. <laughs> and if you want to have a world where we're not tracked with every purchase we make, use cash. Mm. It's the great anonymizer. Um, and it, it, it kind of goes down to who's designing the system and for what purpose. So even, you know, delivering government services electronically probably makes perfect sense if your objective is how do we spend less money delivering government services and then they'll say to you, and that's great because now you can pay less tax or we can spend it on schools or hospitals, you know, all that sort of stuff. But isn't it, think about a world, it's where I feel we've really missed a beat over the last few decades. So if the technology can allow us to, to do everything, anything, but it's been driven in order to either make money or save money, there's just this huge world we haven't even explored. And the, the whole model of technology in the public interest has been lost. And I think it's largely been lost because we've been the consumers rather than the drivers. And I, what I really think is starting, I know that Julia and Robert are part of this global movement that's trying to get ordinary people thinking about, I guess, the political economy of technology in a way mm -hmm. that they have a little bit of agency in what this is going on. Like, it's been like we're kind of spectators and consumers through this incredible change rather than active players to the extent that I think most of us don't even know if we were sitting down with a decision maker what we'd be asking them to do differently. So it's it's got us... It, it, it's profoundly challenging, but it's profoundly important to put people back at the centre of what change looks like, and not people as consumers, but people as citizens. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, well said. We have time for one last question, and luckily, there's a person here that already has a microphone. I've got the microphone. Um, you said before you used the term the the town square. When I was studying urban design back in 1999, we were looking at the internet and how would this wonderful tool allow us to, you know, that ultimate democratization uh, of, of a space. And, and I think of the term in urban design of the public realm, which is basically everything that we're in right now between the buildings. Mm. We need to be more civic minded in the way we treat these spaces. And I think that your idea of having regulations and rules and I'm not a town planner, but I do think that there's a lot of rules in town planning that show that we can do things like we can set up buffers between industry and residential. So what's the, what's the internet equivalent of that? Because we've really got to take control of this with rules. And you made me think, you reminded me for another reason why I don't like Ronald Reagan, because he, <laughs> he deregulated that whole idea of respect where we had equal time for a rebuttal. We don't have that's that right. anymore. That's right. That's right. It, it, the effects of that are, have been so large. And I, I like your metaphor. I like the mm. idea of treating it as if it's a social architecture problem. And I, I believe that's a, that's, a really, that's a really lovely metaphor, the idea of separations of zones and and uh, you know the, the the egress from one to the other being controlled in some fashion. I think that's a good metaphor. Yeah. Have you heard of the company Sidewalk Labs? Has anyone here heard of them? No. So, yeah. Well, it's a subsidiary of Google, and it has a guy who's director of public realm. And what a great job title. Well, except for who he's working for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Peter said about how privacy has been this traditional b debate. And, you know, we reach for privacy because it's one of the only things we have when we feel like we're being um, disenfranchised. And really what we're dealing with is mass privatisation enabled by tools that um, erode privacy. And Sidewall Labs is a great example of the kind of world I think we don't want to have at all. And the fact that they could take an entire... It's, it's, it's half the city of Toronto... In, in, yeah, its, yeah. in its grand um, vision. And it's a vision of everything is part of a platform, including city council. It's just like, it's an app on a great mm. platform. That's the envisioning of it. And our tiny homes in, in a vision that's, um, you know, we, we're just in a honeycomb of, of little homes that are connected to a central machine, like the EM Forster story, the machine stops. It's exactly, you know, the dystopia. The hive. Yeah. yeah. So I, th I think that it, it is a great, um, and, and we have here in Adelaide Lot 14, which is sort of trying to do something that is smart, but it's not something that I think integrates the sort of technologies and the visions of people who don't want to be getting information about crises through Facebook. Where, where is that voice in how we're designing um, civic spaces? So I, this, this is why I think there's a moment that we all can find some 
um, touch points into as we transition from screens to physical yeah. spaces. We all have yeah. intuitions about that. We all know what's right and wrong, that you want to mark a space where we, we don't want everything around us to be watching us at all mm. times and we certainly don't want it to be controlled by a company that in mm. controls everything else. So that privatisation mm. shift, the domination that comes from it, I think is quite terrifying and that's a, it's a great template of what yeah. we will get. One of, the, one of the cities they looked at when they were looking at Toronto was an Australian city. So they, I think, have a a global vision and we need, to, we need to get ahead of how that could arrive in places where we don't have a lot of, um, I think, civic resistance already. And the last word to you, yeah, Peter. I think of the public square as, or the collapse of a public square as a Venn diagram. We've had the collapse of trust in public institutions, we've had the collapse of the media models and we've also had the distortion of the democratic process for running elections. If you think of that as a Venn diagram, at the centre of it, is Facebook and the big tech business model. So without trying to be trite, I think there is an immediate, if, 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 if we say that getting our public square in order is the only way that we can manage the profound change we're living through, then getting the square in order is vital and dealing with big tech and their insidious impact on the square through their very successful business models is critical. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us in our very own public square. Will you please welcome, thank brother, Robert, Julia and Peter. My name... I'm just going to keep on clapping. As I mentioned earlier, if you want to have more conversation, particularly with Peter and Robert, they have books. You should buy them and talk to them. Uh, they're going to be at the back signing them. Uh, Julia and I will accept bribes of drinks, yes. Yes, we will. Thank you so much. Make sure you come back here because in an hour, Tim Ross and Kit Warhurst will be uh, up on this stage taking you on a journey through Australia's many wonderful motels. We'll see you then. Thank you so much. Have a great one, Adelaide.